Hello, and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand, here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Julia. So right before we started recording, we were talking about um, topics we could chit-chat about, and I actually had this moment of panic that maybe there's nothing um, that I would have to talk about that would be remotely interesting. Uh, and then I remembered that you're my co-host and that you would um, certainly have a good idea. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm did, going to rely you on hear you. Me, <laughs> did you hear me gasp? That means uh, I'm shocked at the idea that you would think that you don't have interesting things to talk about. Oh, pshaw. That's, that's very kind of you. Um, uh, but here's, here's the thing that we have to talk about. It's, it's October, which means it is the month of Halloween. Uh, and and this is this is a big deal for me. I know it's not about work. It's it's not academic. Um, but but no podcast that I'm a part of would be complete without some discussion of the most wonderful time of the year that we are currently <laughs> in. So happy Halloween month, dear listeners. I, I hope you're celebrating in uh, whatever ways are appropriate. Drinking your pumpkin spice lattes, planning your costumes. Uh, structuring all of your course materials to make reference to Halloween. Uh, you know, these are some things that people do for Halloween. Julia, what do you do for Halloween? <laughs> <laughs> what have you been doing all, right. all month to sort of so, celebrate? Uh, so starting in August, um, I start brainstorming. I start my like Halloween party planning documents and Halloween decorating documents. Um in September, I start getting my Halloween catalogs. Uh, I don't know how I'm on their lists. No, I know it's because it's because I order all kinds of Halloween things, and you know the internet sees my browsing history starting in, in August, um, and then I start getting my Halloween catalogs, and I start planning. You know what are going to be the new things that I ordered this year or that I set up this year. Um, I also like I have small children, and so if I'm going to do a lot of Halloween decorating, um, I also start kind of priming them to kind of get them comfortable and excited about the house being full of what are things that could potentially be scary, right? Like skeletons and mm -hmm. fake animals and things. Um, and so starting really early, they'll look at the Halloween catalogs with me and I'll say, "Ooh, which of these things should we get? And if we got one of those witches, what would you want to name her? And, you know, and things like that to get to get them jazzed about it. Do you try and to then, like, like uh, soften the blue a little bit? Like, sure, it's, it's a skeleton, but it's a happy skeleton. You know, and yes, um, and and I say like, oh, look at that skeleton! Isn't that funny? He's walking a dog, or you know, I try to like, mm -hmm. right, make it like funny and lighthearted because a lot of things like just seeing a skeleton isn't like the reason that it's scary is because we have all of these connotations that it should be scary, right? And we right. have like seen them in scary movies when they're paired with other forms of scary stimuli. Um, but most of these things, like, there's not actually anything like super scary about them. And mm -hmm. so if I'm if I'm presenting them in this positive light, you know, um I also start showing the kids pictures of themselves interacting with the Halloween stuff from last year. Mm -hmm. So I'll be like, "Oh, look, do you remember when you put the skeleton in the high chair and pretended to feed it breakfast?" You know, and then they're like, "Oh, yeah, I want to do that again." Okay, so I start, you know, brainwashing the children in <laughs> September. And then on September 30th, I put them to bed and I say, "All right, when you when you wake up in the morning, there's going to be new Halloween stuff downstairs. And so every night after they go to bed, I'll take out some new decoration, put up some new display or something so that then when they wake up in the morning, the first thing that they're excited to, to do is go downstairs and find the new Halloween stuff. So they'll, you know, run around the house in their little pajamas and be like, look, mama, there's a raven. Look, mama, there's chains. Um, and so they really get into it, too. And so now I'm like, uh, I, uh, this is, this is, this is kind of turning into like a big thing where I do my whole house and my whole yard and I have, you know, lots of big complicated displays. I host a big Halloween party. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, on Halloween proper, um, all of the children all around the neighborhood come and, you know, it's like the, my house is now becoming a kind of a, a Halloween destination. If I'm, if I may be so bold as to say that, uh, and it's just, I just love it so much. And then also I wear a lot of Halloween themed clothes and we, you know, I just, it's so fun because, because it's like, it's this time where you get to be like spooky and otherworldly and things are like exciting and unexpected and I don't know. It's so fun. I just, I love it. I love it. 
Well, it's kind of like a it's theatrical, right? Like it's a way to be kind yeah. of creative and you can dress up as someone you're not and maybe, you know, make your house something in, into, into something that's usually not. Yeah. So, right. It's a nice opportunity to just, yeah, walk, walk in another world for a little bit. But there is a little bit of a sense of, um, I mean, are you are you in danger of being like the neighborhood witch who like, you know, sets up a really oh. nice house and puts out candy and lures all the neighborhood children in? I think I think I'm more in danger of being like a neighborhood eyesore where people are like, <laughs> which is gonna why file I'm, a complaint about your yeah, decorations. I, I don't start any decorating until October 1st and I take it all down on November 1st. So it's very like mm-hmm. strictly, you know, one month. You're a good um, neighbor. I, you know, I, but I did have one year I was out in front, like putting stuff um, up in the bushes. I was like putting those like stretchy fake spider webs in my front bushes. Mm-hmm. And one of my neighbors came over and said, oh, I saw you working over here. And I thought maybe I'd come help you get all that trash out of your bushes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I'm very deliberately putting this I'm, trash, I'm putting this trash into in my bushes. bushes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it'll be gone on November 1st. So <laughs> were you always super into Halloween? Yeah, it's been, yeah. Um, like starting in middle school, I started like planning Halloween parties and they've just gotten like bigger and bigger and more complicated and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually a friend of mine, um, my friend Violet was telling me once that she was sitting at a bar and there were some people sitting next to her and, you know, they just got to chatting and, and they said that they were in town for a Halloween convention. And Violet was like, <laughs> A Halloween convention. And, you know, they were talking about how you like go to these conventions and get ideas for decorating and all this stuff. And she's like, wow, you know, I should tell my, my friend Julia about this because she loves Halloween and decorates a lot and has, you know, these these big complicated parties. And the people were like, yeah, that's how we started, too. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, no, there's a level above this. Like, there's something like I can go I can go bigger than this. Right. You thought so, you reached the pinnacle. And then I know. You're like, just I was a like, beginner. I was like, if I'm doing like the biggest, most complicated thing in my neighborhood and of all my friends, that's, you know. But no, there's a there's a level higher. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we'll I, good luck. I wish I wish I could come to your party. That's all I'll say. Maybe, oh. Yeah. Maybe next year. Another year. Yep. So today uh, we're going to start by sharing a listener email with a question. And then hopefully we'll kind of circle back to answer that question at the at the end. Um, so this is from Nate. And one of the things Nate is asking about is uh, whether we have suggestions about strategies for handling new requests at work, even when your plate is already full. I think that is a great question and actually um probably one that deserves a lot more than we can get to today. But to start answering that, um, we're going to kind of start by talking about something that we've been throwing around uh, between the two of us for a while, which is of all of the things you have in front of you to do, how do you choose at any moment or at any time in your life, which one to work on? Um, This is a kind of perennial question that comes back over and over again. And it's something that I I always struggle with. I'm always looking for new ways to sort of do a better job at this. So I think this is a really, a really great topic to start off with. And there's a, there's a large scale question here and a small scale question. So there's the, the big picture question of like, what are the, at least for me, like, what are the research agendas that I want to pursue? What are like the lines of work I want to do? What are the kinds of courses that I want to teach? But then there's also like, here I am sitting at my desk. I've just finished a project. What is like the very next thing that I work on? Yeah, exactly. And I think, right, and those are both related, but also different. <laughs> okay, so I've been thinking about the big picture aspect of this for a long time. And um, especially sort of after getting my own lab, I think this really hit home. I remember as a graduate student, like, you know, year one or year two, you know, thinking of ideas for research projects and having some trouble, you know, a little bit of existential angst about like, well, what's my project going to be? And, and then I finally found one and I thought, okay, that was really hard to find one. I have to find another one. And I thought someday if Mm -hmm. I have my own lab, like I have to keep thinking of ideas and that can be really hard. Um, And then at some point, right, like the avalanche starts and um, for many people, at least for me, and then very quickly I went from having like a manageable number of ideas to like way too many ideas, all of which I'm excited about on different levels. And so it was 
challenging for me to go through and like pick out the two good ones. I'm like, well, I like them all. I don't know which ones I should, I should focus on. So I started thinking about, um, you know, well, and then I thought, well, when I have a lab, I can do all the things because I'll have all these people <laughs> and like, right. So if I have 10 ideas, I will get 10 people in the lab and we can do all, all 10 things. And it turns out uh, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Surprise. How, how does it turn out? Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, because, you know, people have their own interests and things that always take longer than you think and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, and having 10 people in the lab is great, but then I, I meet with all those 10 people and then I have less time to work on the, the other things. So so it really hit home a kind of a couple of years into um, having my own lab that I was not going to be able to do all the things. Um, I have to, this is a lesson I have to keep relearning, but I started then thinking, okay, each of these projects, let's say, let's say have 20 projects that I all, you know, quote unquote, want to do. Each of them is sort of ticking some box for me. Like here's here's a thing that I think would really be clinically useful, and I think we should pursue it for that reason. Here's another thing that I'm not that interested in, but I get to work with a particular person, and I love that collaboration. So even though I'm mm-hmm. less excited about the experiment, I really like the collaboration. Here's another area that is kind of, eh, it's okay, but I think it's really good for funding because I've seen other grants get funded in this area and I need a grant, mm-hmm. so maybe I should work on this. So each of them has their own reason why it's on the list and, and that's what it's hard to compare, right? Because it's like a multi-dimensional um, right. decision tree or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sat down and, 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 and felt like I had a little bit of time to think about it and I tried to um, come up with a list of kind of like a decision metric, like a heuristic for how do I decide what to work on? Uh, and I'll link to it. I wrote a blog post about it a few years ago, uh, which I'll link to. So uh, let me, um, Julia, I'll give you the four things that I tried to condense all of that um, logic down to. And then okay. my goal is just to try to look for projects that are in the overlap. So, it's, you know, it's a big Venn diagram and all, all the projects have something good. But here are the four things that I kind of wanted to maximize. Um, mm-hmm. So first thing, and this was also I, like Marie Kondo had just gotten popular, uh, but I actually like this. So the first thing that I put down was projects that give me joy mm-hmm. um, and which is a little bit hokey, but I think it's also true because like there are things I like more or less and I only have so much time and why not spend the time doing things that really get me excited? Like not just things that I think I could publish this or, or, or someone should do this. But I should really focus on things that um, that really are the most joyful of all the options I have. Uh, point number two is projects other people are excited about, uh, and so that could be you know granting agencies or reviewers or other colleagues. But if I'm only doing things that I care about, um, that's probably not the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three. Projects my lab is uniquely qualified to do, or at least that we do really well. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, this is partly practical. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, science can be competitive, especially when you're looking for funding. And so rather than dive into an area that I think is cool, but haven't done before, don't know anything about, you know, that's a long road and it takes a long time to become competitive. Why not focus on a niche that um, we're sort of already in and things that we're already doing and, and perhaps you know, have some expertise in. Mm-hmm. And then the last one um, is a little, is probably the vaguest. And so I just said, but the way that I phrased it to myself was projects that are important and awesome. And, <laughs> and yeah, I know. Uh, and so, and actually for a while I moved offices, so I, I since lost it, but for a while I did have a little post-it note on my computer that just said, keep everything awesome, um, which, which was sort of cheesy, but it was, but it's just to remind me that if I go through my day thinking about, uh, okay, what's a project I can publish or what's a project I can get a grant on or mm-hmm. what's a thing that I find interesting? I mean, those are all fine, but they're kind of boring. And again, if you have, if you don't have any ideas, that's a great place to start. But if you have way too many ideas, like don't aim for the, the lowest bar, which is just like, Hey, is this interesting? I mean, almost anything mm-hmm. can be interesting. But, you know, if I use that to winnow down my own list, I can really helps me pick the, you know, top few um, that I'm super excited about that I think could be really um, 
well, I, yeah, awesome. I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, impactful yeah, yeah. And, and sort of, you know, change the way that people think about a thing or just be a really useful resource or something that would be, um, uh, you know, go beyond just my own selfish interests, you know. Sure. Those those are nice, thoughtful criteria. And and as you were saying them, I was wondering, I mean, so so we know that it's not possible to do all 10 of the ideas that you could conceivably at once. Um, but my guess is you probably have more than one research project that's, you know, always kind of in the works. And so do you try to like balance those categories, right? Like if you're doing something that sparks joy for you, when you're making the next decision, you're like, eh, I sparked joy for myself. Now it's time to do something that, you know, the field really needs or the NIH would really like or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my initial idea was that I, as much as possible, every project should be in all of those categories, right? Ah. Um, uh, again, the, the Venn diagram kind of thing that, that could I find projects that actually ticked all of those boxes? In real life, I think that's probably not true. Um, yeah. Y- you know, because because things come up and there are, you know, whatever, collaborations that are important for some reasons that, that maybe don't... Um, that don't meet all those. So, so I guess in practice, probably some, some projects fit one of those and some fit the other, but yeah, my, my mm-hmm. ideal dream goal was like, just, just do the projects that meet all of those, uh, mm-hmm. because I have no, I have no better way of narrowing down the list. Yeah. Well, and I think it's nice to take the time to like actually put in what, what the criteria are so that when you, you know, are looking at a, at a project, you have something to evaluate it on. Um, even if it's hard to do those, you know, totally objectively. Right. Yeah. And I guess what what I was going to say is I think it's also kind of useful in, um, in retrospect to kind of go back and think about, you know, even as projects are wrapping up, what was my expectation of that project and sort of how mm-hmm. did it turn out? Um, mm-hmm. There's one in particular that I'm, I'm thinking of now. I'm, I'm glad we, why well, I'm glad we did it. Uh, and not to get too much into the details, but, but I'm going to, cause it's a little bit, it's a little <laughs> bit important. So as part of a different research project, we're looking at um, sentence processing and predictability and sort of how acoustic challenge, like background noise or hearing loss affects our speech perception. And what we wanted to do was look at the role of predictability in, in speech processing. So if you have a word that's in noise, it's hard to understand it, but if you have some context, it can be easier and in the past, people have often used sort of high and low context sentences. So um, for a word like coffee, you might hear Julia liked the coffee. And that's not very predictive because you could like lots of things, but it makes sense. It's fine, but it doesn't give you a lot of information. Or well, I could... also, I don't, also, I'm not really a coffee drinker. Okay, also, and so, also uh... it's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> Um, or the other one would be, you know, Jonathan likes milk and sugar in his coffee. And in that mm. case, uh, that's also a lie because I, I don't like milk and sugar in my coffee. But but you a lot of people would guess what that word was. So it provides a lot of, of context. And mm-hmm. so we were looking for words that fit specific characteristics about word frequency and, and sort of confusability and also predictability. And we, we couldn't find any. Uh, so we thought, you know what, we're going to make up our own list of words. And because um, you never know, you know, when you're running an experiment, sometimes you need 20 sentences, sometimes you need 200, um, then sometimes you need 250. You know, I, I guess in the past, I've been in this situation where I do a study, it needs 200 sentences, I record 200 sentences, and then the, the very next study needs 205 or something. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, and I have to go through the whole process because you want the same person to be recording them, and it's a big pain. So we wanted to, to make a big, big list of sentences. So we made up sentences. We did online norming to get people's guesses at the final word. We have 3,085 sentences. We've got Mm. predictability norms for how people complete them. We can get lots of other information. Um, And so this is actually, the point of this was actually not to advertise the paper. I think it's a really cool paper. The point was this took like five years, right? So like five Mm -hmm. years ago, it was like, hey, let's do a study next month oh, no, we don't have these norms, we should make them. I had no Mm -hmm. idea what I was getting into. And so, you know, if I look at my own list, does it give me joy? I mean, a little bit. I I liked, we did some online um, data collection, which was cool. And I I like, now that we're done, I kind of like having it, but it it was kind of more of a slog than a joyful 
exciting mm-hmm. experience. Um, other people might be excited, which is good. Uniquely qualified to do. I don't know if, I mean, a lot of people could have done this, but no one did. Um, mm-hmm. And then projects that are important and awesome. I don't, I don't think, um, probably this is not going to be on my, you know, gravestone someday, like Jonathan Peel, who invented the 3085 sentence prediction norms. <laughs> um, so, so it's fine, but it's useful. And I, it was, there was a good reason for it. So it, this is a good example of just like, I'm thinking about this going back and saying, well, was it worth five years? It's a, it's a good resource. It's good to have. Um, was it worth the effort that we put in? One mm-hmm. might even say, was the juice worth the squeeze? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Would one? Yeah, w- one might. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, honestly, I don't know. It's a, that's a great question because now I am glad we have it. We can use it for lots of lots of projects ourselves, and hopefully, by sharing other it, we people. can yeah. Uh, yeah help other people. And like that, all seems really good. Uh, but it also just felt like a really big diversion from like our main research question. Like, so maybe mm-hmm. there was there would have been a better way. So long way of saying that's a project that was took way longer and way more effort than I thought and didn't really tick all the boxes going in and probably still doesn't. But then I'm kind of glad we did it. You know, yeah. Um, I, I had a similar project, um, some years ago where I, I, there was a question that I wanted to answer, but I realized I couldn't answer it without really knowing how to measure this one particular construct, which then turned into a multiple year project of figuring out the best way to measure this construct. And and it also felt like a real slog. And I remember when I was planning it, I was talking with my PhD mentor and I was like, this seems like a really important foundational question about measurement. Why hasn't anybody done this study? And he just looked at me and he was like, who would want to do this study? This is going <laughs> right. to take forever. It's uh-huh. gonna, and it's boring. And, you know, um, but but frankly, like given where the state of the field um, of psychology is, I mean, where science is generally with lots of failures to replicate and concerns that we don't understand the constructs that we're measuring, um, you know, that the measurements that we're using may not actually be measuring what we think they are. Um, I hope we see a lot more of this kind Mm -hmm. of like boring, time-consuming, slow work that actually then enables us to trust the studies that build on it. Yeah. Right. And so I I feel much better about like the staying power of the research that comes after these really boring slogs that we've that we've done um, than I would about, you know, what we would have done with that time that may not have been so like methodologically rigorous. Yeah. No, I do think that there is um, a real need for, yeah, for more rigor generally and like for doing the hard work of testing these foundational assumptions and, um, yeah, generating better better data for better theories. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And sometimes, and honestly, yeah. So if you go back to my, uh, to my list, I mean, sometimes that stuff isn't going to be joyful, right? Like sometimes you're just slogging through the mud to get to, to get to an important endpoint. Or, or down there in the mud, you are laying the foundations for what will be, you know, a, a beautiful and joyful thing you can build on top of it. Right. Yeah. That's a better way to <laughs> think about it. I mean, I do How's think that for you? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Something that continue, has always, I, ever since I started as a PhD student, you know, very early on, I was surprised by how long, how long science takes. And then mm-hmm. ha- with that experience and, and maybe, you know, let's just say some wisdom from, from aging, one would think that I would now really get it, right? Like every year I would just really understand it. I'm still surprised by how long everything takes. And I think mm-hmm. that the arc, like the arc of a research program is just so long, right? Like it's probably, you could easily see one researcher who works a full long life in the lab or whatever, like having an arc to their own story where they start at the beginning and they kind of, you know, go through all of these um stages of fighting this the slog through the mud and then eventually maybe or maybe not build something up from that but then mm-hmm. uh, and so like part of me thinks okay what what do i want my arc to be right like 20 years from now or you know or when i retire hopefully not 20 years from now um when i retire what, what do i want to look back and what do i want to have built and how do i kind of start that arc now and maybe you know, maybe it's 10 years of slogging through the mud to build the foundation so that in 20 years we can do something 
like more interesting, mm-hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. that's a really hard time scale for me to plan on because I just I haven't done that before, and I I find it challenging um, to you know to think on that scale. But then there are lots of people who don't have that kind of time scale. Like if you do a PhD, you know that's like three, four, or five years, and so if you spend all five years crawling in the mud, I mean, that, that's, that's no fun. Um, and so I think, you know, so there's this kind of hierarchy of like, there's the big picture and then there's the little pictures. And like during those five years, you might spend two or three years in the mud and then try to do something from that. And that can, you know, everything builds on what's um, been done previously, but everyone who's working on a project has a different perspective and a different sort of, you know, arc to their, um, to their research, which might be short, might be long, might go in a different direction. And I think, I don't know, I don't think about this explicitly that often. I honestly am sort of, my planning is kind of like a five-year plan. And and it's no coincidence that that's kind of like how long an NIH grant is. I'm kind of like, <laughs> what can we do in five years? Uh, and then, you know, with, with another five years. And actually, you know, also like given that a PhD is maybe about five years, um, I think that's a reasonable time course over which to plan. But then mm-hmm. you also, but the, I I don't have a good sense of the longer plan. And so I I would like to have a bigger, a bigger sense of that picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I also um, try with research projects to have a balance that if we're running something that feels like a slog and is a service to the field and we're doing it because I want somebody to do it, but not necessarily because I want to be the one to do it. Um, if I have that line of work going on, I also want to be running something or working on something that is more just intellectually super fun. Mm-hmm. And so I like kind of getting those different components simultaneously because I don't want to spend five years slogging. I want to spend five years doing some hard work on, you know, measurement and methodology and, you know, the the foundations and then some stuff that's just more fun to think about and learn about. Yeah. And actually, so maybe what you're saying, whether you mean to or not, is that um, my my goal of every project checking every box is probably not realistic. And so maybe it's a good framework to think about it, but actually probably putting together different projects for different reasons is more doable. And, and probably that's actually, if I think about all the things we have going on now in the lab, you know, that's probably what I've done. Right. So a couple of them are more long-term, someone should do this. I guess it'll be us. And some of them are are like, Oh, I had a really cool idea last week. Let's just jump in and try this really Mm -hmm. cool thing, even though who knows if it'll work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also like that approach because um, so Carlton uh, is an undergrad only institution. So I you know work with undergraduates and typically they join my lab in, I don't know, maybe sophomore year, maybe junior year. But so, so I have students for much shorter than a PhD length of time. Right. So if I have a student who's going to work in my lab for two years, I want to make sure that they see the whole research process. Mm-hmm right? From, from start to end. Um, and, and it isn't always in the exact same project. I mean, they spend two years, they'll, they'll typically see one project from start to finish. But if we have multiple lines that are running simultaneously, one that is more foundational, one that is, you know, more cutting edge, exciting, um, then it also gives them a taste of the, the different forms that research can take, you know, and the different reasons that we pursue Mm -hmm. different lines of work. Um, I also, it's just more fun for me to have a couple of things going, you know, that, that, and that, and that are, that are, that are really different. Well, and I think I'm okay. So I'm not like a big investor stock market person, but I, as an analogy, like glossing over all the important details, I I often think (laughs) about research projects as like a portfolio, right? Like Mm -hmm, you are mm -hmm. making a little bit of a gamble. There's lots of things we don't know about the specific thing we're studying and also just practical things or whatever. And so if you only, if you put all your eggs in one basket, right, like it might pay off really big or it might just be a total flop, which is super depressing. Mm -hmm. So if you have three projects, like probably one of them will work out um, or, you know, be interesting. And if, if one of them doesn't, you haven't lost everything. So I think Mm -hmm. there's also, I mean, yeah, there's a practical benefit to that in terms of like, papers or grants or whatever, but just internally, like for your own mental sanity, right? Just having something going well is is good, right? Even if each each of the three things take longer, but you have something to hang on to and kind of get your get uh, motivated by. 
Yeah. And I think there's a larger point um, to be made here that, that that doesn't just apply to research projects. Right. That if, mm-hmm. if I have uh, my research, something goes terribly wrong, a paper gets rejected, an experiment, we, you know, something goes wrong. Um, if if being a researcher was the only thing about my identity, that would be quite a blow, you know. But when those things happen, be like, well, I taught a great class today, got a happy family, I got good friends. You know, there's like all of these other things that you can point to where you're like, no, no, see, th- things are still good. And right. so when I'm thinking about, you know how do I decide what to work on next and balancing my time? Um, I'm also thinking about like diversifying in terms of all of the different realms of life I am investing in. Yeah. That's a really good point. See what I did there? (laughs) Well, you always have Halloween, Julia, right? Like if everything You know what? I always have Halloween. (laughs) Even if, you know, teaching falls apart, research falls apart. Everything else falls apart. You're like, just wait till October 1st. It's like, it's going to be fine. I've got all those dresses with skulls on them. (laughs) Right. Right. That wouldn't be creepy at all. (laughs) um, Yeah, no, I think that that's a really important point uh, as well. But, okay, so... I'm going to bring, I'm going to do a course correction to our, to our ship here because. Oh, right. Um, so, so we've been talking a lot about how different projects meet different, different goals, different, different reasons they're important and like how diversifying is super important. And, um, and so I give myself that pep talk and then what happens is I say yes to everything. Right. So like <laughs> getting back to the original question, you know, about how do you handle when your plate's already full, you get a new request. Um, and, I, and I have some specific thoughts on that. But just for me with research projects, right, like 100 percent full, I'm over diversified and way too tired. And then another thing comes up and I say, well, you know, maybe this is the one that is going to really be super exciting. So I'm going to say yes. Right. Or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And so. I, I still tell myself, I think it's important that, um, I guess, depending on what stage you're at and, and how many opportunities you have, but, but for me, the challenge is saying no to something. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the thing is all these things are good, right? So I can't, it's not like say yes to the good things and say no to the bad things, which is what I always mm-hmm. default to. And I just, I think it's human nature to do that. It's like among the good things, you still have to say no to probably most of them. And Mm -hmm. so it's not a, and really it's probably not about like of all the things, pick a couple to say no to. It's about like default saying no to everything. And then you have to be very specific about like, what are the three you're going to say yes to? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, so anyways, I still struggle with that a lot. So do you, what, yeah. What about you? How do you think about that? Like, you know, like how many, how many big projects do you have mental time for and how do you pick what those are? Yeah. So when I have a, when I have an idea that I'm like a research idea that I'm really excited about, um, what I typically do is just add it to my, you know, Google doc of experiment ideas that I'm excited about. Um, but, uh, I, I usually don't say, oh, we have to do this right now because, you know, I, I, I know that I just can't do all of the things right now. Um, but typically just putting it on a list and being like, yep, that's, you know, third and third on the docket, um, is enough to kind of satisfy that for me, at at least for like research ideas. Mm -hmm. I have other things that are hard for me to say no to, like, you know, if there's an organization that I really care about that asks me to do some committee work or be part of it or something. Um, those are the things where, where it's like, no, they need this right now. This isn't a research project that will be just as good two years from now. This is something that has to happen right now. Like the timeline isn't um, in your control, right? The timeline right, yeah, is yeah. external and you either help now yep. or you've lost it for forever. Uh, I had a, I had a year long sabbatical a couple of years ago and, and it was this amazing time when the expectation was that I should say no to everything that was asked of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and all of my senior colleagues were very clear. They were like, focus on your research, focus on thinking about classes, like don't do other stuff. And it was really nice to like get in that habit for like a year of whenever things came up, somebody was like, I need volunteers for this. I need somebody to help with this. Julia, you are you, you, it must be you. You're uniquely qualified. Just be like, nobody actually said that. I just yeah, <laughs> make it a point. Um, uh, to say, you know, this is my time when I say no. And, and, and I feel like that really helped then when I came off sabbatical, um, to be like, this, 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 uh, this is a thing that people do. People say no to stuff 
and and you now know what that feels like to default to no. Um, and so that that I think helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have have a couple of people who I've you know had conversations uh, about this with. Um, and when I say no to something that was like a hard thing to say no to, um, I will I will like tell them, like call them up and say, hey, guess what? I just said no to something. And they know that the right thing to say is good for you. Right. That's a way to manage your time. You know, and so like having people who support that because the person on the other end of the phone who has asked you to do something is not going to give you that uh, that right. enthusiastic <laughs> for, response for turning them down. No. So, right. yeah. Um, and so I think that can be, you know, that can, that can be useful to have people to support you doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then recently I have also kind of made a framework for myself where, you know, I'm thinking about like what in the next five years are the things that I really care about doing and I really want to pursue. Um, and for me, it is this one particular line of research that I'm really excited about that I recently got a grant for. And so like, I'm, you know, kind of locked into to doing that work. Um, and the other like big professional thing is, um, working on thinking about helping out with, um, the open science movement. So the movement to kind of make research more, uh, transparent and, and replicable. And so I have written some about this and, you know, help with some of the professional organizations that, that are doing, doing this work. Um, and I'm organizing a workshop that has to do with this. And so when things now come up for me and, you know, there are these opportunities, I kind of say to myself, is this going to help this line of research that I'm really excited about or help me do open science? And, and now that I have kind of made those commitments to putting a lot of my work toward those in, in those two directions, um, when things have come up, I say, Oh gosh, that's cool. But I, I made a commitment to these two lines and that's, that's not in those, those two lines. And that has also helped me be like, eh, I'm not going to go to that conference. I'm not going to do this other thing because mm-hmm. those aren't directly contributing to these things that I feel like I've made, made commitments to. I think it's helpful in your case, like that you have, um, I mean, maybe you have more, but that, but the, that you've shared like two, two clear areas because two is a number. You can remember what those two things are. Right. And like, <laughs> it's like, you can't, you probably can't have more than one priority, but like, let's say two priorities, maybe, you know, that seems reasonable. You can't have 10, right? Like as soon as right. after a certain number, which is probably two, um, mm-hmm. you know, if every, everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. And mm-hmm. so, um, I think that's also a smart way to think about it is that if, if someone's in a position where they can't or kind of art, be art, articulate, like here are the one or two things I'm really focused on. I mean, I guess it's not a moral issue, but it's sort of like you might be shooting yourself in the foot by having too many, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, too many quote unquote priorities. I, I say that like fully talking about myself. So if anyone's listening, I'm not being critical. This is, this is where I find myself is like, I can't. Mm-hmm that focus. And I think, um, my life would be simpler if I could. So that's, you know, that's sort of a goal for me is to be able to hone things down and be a little bit less diverse. Yeah. I, I will, um, I often have conversations with students where they're saying, Oh, should I do this additional activity or take this additional class or, uh, and, and, and the default advice that I often give is it is better to do fewer things better mm-hmm. than more things worse. Yeah. Um, and I, I, uh, believe very much in being well-rounded and being somewhat diversified, but not to the extent that it makes you do all of those things badly. Right. Right. Or, right. Or other parts of your life suffer like your sanity. Exactly. Or, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny because here I am saying, I'm going to say no to things that don't have to do with this one line of research or open science. Um, but then I got a call from my friend Jonathan, who said, "Hey, do you want to do a podcast <laughs> right, with me?" Right, right. Well, and I was like, mm, "That is that is not directly contributing to either of those lines." But one one of the other um, strategies that I use when people are asking for things, you know, and this is like, "Hey, will you look at my book manuscript?" Or, "Hey, will you you know give a talk at this thing or something?" Um, uh, I don't I don't remember where where this advice came from, but it was you know if someone is asking you to do th- something that's a long time in the future, it's very easy for us to say, oh well, surely in the future I won't be as busy, time won't be as tight as it is right now. Um, but of but of course, like it probably is, right? Like I'm always like, oh, you want me to do that in March? Sure, March. That's never going to happen. That's so far away. Mm-hmm. Um, but when March happens, I'm going to feel exactly you know as busy as I do now. I'm sure. Um, but so so the advice is figure out if this were due next week, like when this week would you have the time to do it? 
And, and when, when it's, when you're making that, like the, the time commitment that you're going to spend more concrete, I think it's easier for us to be like, oh gosh, I, I wouldn't have five hours this week to work on this. What makes me think I'm going to have five hours in March to work on this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so when, you know, when you suggested that we do a podcast together, um, one of the things that I was thinking is this isn't something that is like in my list of priorities, um, but it is, but making information about academia and work and, you know, the culture in which we live more accessible to people is something that I really care about. And no matter how busy I am, I can look at my week and find one week to, you know, Skype with you and talk about things. Mm -hmm. And so it is, uh, um, it's a kind of a, a small enough, easy enough commitment that even though it isn't directly working toward one of those things, I thought it was important and I thought it would be fun um, and, and then the, the, the juice is worth the squeeze because mm-hmm. there's, there's not that much squeeze. <laughs> right. Not that, that, okay. The title for the show, right? <laughs> not, 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 not that, that much, much squeeze. squeeze. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I do think, um, right. We have to leave ourselves open for those other opportunities that come in, mm-hmm. you know, again, whether it's kind of work stuff or personal stuff, because, you know, if you're too focused on like one thing or, or a couple of things, you might miss out you know, on, on opportunity. I was going to say you might miss out on these amazing opportunities, which is true. <laughs> <laughs> we can decide later if this falls in that category, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad you said yes. It was, it was good. Um, mm-hmm. So coming back to, to Nate's original question. So what do you mm-hmm. do? Like we've been talking a lot about sort of, or, or the way that I've been framing it to myself is sort of like of all of the things that I already know about that are on my list that I came up with, uh, what do I do? And it's still very challenging. I think we'll probably come back to this topic again because uh, mm-hmm. I, I haven't solved it. But then you get an email or a phone call from someone who asks you to do a new thing. And so one, I think you're kind of framing this as sort of like, you know, do you have time? Is it related to your priorities? Do you have time this week to work on it? Like those are really those are really good ways to help make the decision. Mm-hmm. What about things but then, you know, what about things you don't want to do, right? Like you get called, but you're asked to do it like by your department chair or like by someone in the field you respect says, do you have time to mm-hmm. review this paper? Uh, mm-hmm. And you really don't, right? Like, like not aligned with my priorities in my own life. I don't have time this week to do it. But, but then what do you do? I mean, obviously you can just say no all the, you know, to all those things, but that, that can mm-hmm. be hard to do. Yeah, it, uh, it can, but I, I, I think that's the right thing to do. Um, but also being mindful of like, if you said no, the last time your department chair asked you to do something, you know, right, you, you right. can't, you can't always say no. Right. Um, you know, so s- saving your nose for, for w- when they really mean something, yeah. you know, <laughs> there's a parallel to be made here about, uh, having small children, which is like, a lot of the time they're doing something that you would rather they don't do, but you can't tell them no about every single thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so you've, you know, ch- choose your nose wisely. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it is hard. I mean, it's hard both because, both because it, you know, can be hard to like give up opportunities, but also there's like, there's that social cost, mm-hmm. right? Like right. maybe if I say no to this, they won't ask me again. Maybe they'll think less of me you know, all of those things. Um, but, but I think like remembering that if you don't say no to some things, you'll do everything badly Mm -hmm. might be helpful, right? Like, well, I think ultimately, I mean, we can talk all around it, but ultimately like you're going to say yes, you're going to say no. And Mm -hmm. so if you say yes to everything, like, like, you know, there lies madness, like you can't do that. Mm So if you have to say no, there might be different strategies of doing it, but like you have to make yourself say no yet sometime. Mm-hmm. Or you'll say yes to everything and then you won't do it. And then you sort of, you've kind of said no, like with your actions, but now you've sort of like let someone down and get all stressed out about it. So you have to manage it up front. Right. There, uh, there is another strategy, um, uh, which is to put things off in time. Uh, and I, not, not in a, so, you know, assuming that we all want to help our colleagues and other people and we're not trying to, to be difficult, 
But sometimes there are requests that seem time sensitive that aren't, or mm -hmm. that you might be able to, maybe you will actually have more time in a different, you know, a couple months or next semester, because you're not prepping a new course or because, you know, whatever, you're not traveling as much. And so it, for things that aren't necessarily urgent, um, I, I think spreading out the timeline can be helpful. Uh, and yeah. sometimes the requests go away, or at least, at least it doesn't have to be done today. I mean, this is sort of mm -hmm. like, um, okay, this is a, not a charitable way to frame it, but there's, there's a saying, you know, your lack of planning doesn't make it my emergency, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone says, hey, can you do this thing for me right now in the next hour? I need it done. Um, you know, so one response would be, yes, of course, I'll drop everything and help you. Another one would be like, oh, you know, it's a really tough week. You know, can we get coffee next week and talk about it? Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Or like maybe like, oh, the next couple of weeks are really tough. You know, how about the week of you know November 3rd or wh whatever? And just mm -hmm. kind of spreading out the, the time a little bit can help because it gives you time to think about it. And, and it doesn't like jam pack your current schedule with all of these external requests. And then sometimes yep. the other person will also, um, it might seem less urgent to them or they may think of other solutions or just kind of having a little more time can be useful. Uh, and that can even work on like a bigger time scale. Like this semester is really tough because I'm prepping a new course, but how about next semester? You know, please get mm -hmm. back in touch. And mm -hmm. now, and sometimes people won't get back in touch because they'll figure out something else and then you don't have to do it. Um, uh, but but if they do get back in touch, then you can revisit it then, right? So it just kind of like slows down the external demand process a little bit. Uh, and that mm -hmm. can be helpful. And so I think just telling people no all the time, I mean, especially people you want to maintain good relationships with, that that doesn't work. But telling people, um, you know, hopefully honestly that like, I really want to help, but I just can't right now, but get back in touch. That sort of communicates the social part that you're not just shooting them down but also leaves you in control of your, your time a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe a useful way of thinking about this is to, to know and believe and understand that you have to say no to some things. Like you have this, you know, pile of no's at your disposal. Um, and, and that the goal is selectively deciding where you're going to put them. Mm-hmm. Right. So when the phone rings and somebody asks you to do something or you check your email and there's a request there, um, rather than defaulting to, yeah, I should probably do that. Yeah, that would probably be helpful. Think to yourself, hey, I got all these no's that I have to spend and and and, and I have to do them because otherwise I'm going to be bad at my job. So which of these things makes the most sense to to be saying no to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to be thinking about it as like this is a this is a resource that I have that I have to use up. I like, um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, I mean, also the, the kind of the converse works that you like, you have a limited number of yeses, like you have five yeses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and like, mm -hmm. if you use them all up today, then like mm -hmm. for the rest of the year, you have to say no to everything. Oh, right. That, oh, I like that even more. Yeah. Um, and obviously right, you have to hold yourself like... to it, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I've heard of people doing this for journal article reviews. So like you can't mm. say yes to all of them, but you want to say yes to some. And it's like, if you know that you you can only allow yourself to say yes to X number, you might be mm -hmm. a little bit more picky on what you choose to do, but you're still then, you know, helping out, but you're a little bit more in control of your time as opposed to just mm -hmm. whatever comes in this week. I'll see if I have time for. Um, yeah, I like that. Or for conference trips too. I've also heard like, you know, people are going to, I'm going to go to two conferences this year, whatever, give two talks. Like, what are they mm -hmm. as opposed to just mm -hmm. considering all, all the requests we get? Well, here we are. We have uh, talked in great detail about the big picture of how do we decide what to work on. Um, but we haven't touched on the on the smaller picture, right? Of like on a given day when you sit down and you have a free hour, how do you decide which of the which of the many things that are, you know, uh, uh, potential things you could work on get your attention? Ooh. So yeah, no, you we'll know, have to save that for another time. I think yeah, I think we I think we've, we've talked a lot of big picture today. Um, mm hmm. I hope that was useful for people. It was it was useful for me. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna think about no's a little bit differently. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, so so maybe um are we gonna have a challenge? Is it is the challenge to to spend at least <laughs> one no between now and the next time we talk? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're done already. Darn it. <laughs> that was very clever. Okay. Well I will I will try I will try to do one between now and the next time we talk. 
All right. Just to remind everyone, the portal for sending us mail is open, and I know there's going to be a lot of continued demand for it. So get your email in quick while you can. Uh, we really enjoyed getting your emails. Thank you to those of you who sent them. We do read them all and uh, love to answer more of your questions as we go along. If people would like to find the links and show notes for today's episode, which is episode number five, Julia, where could they go to find that? Juiceandsqueeze.net. Slash. Wait, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, your, your silence freaked me out. <laughs> no, I was I was waiting uh, for the for the you know slash episode. Uh, episode five. Yeah, juiceandsqueeze.net slash, slash five. That's right. That's good. And um, so a, a lot of people I know um, do not know about Patreon. Patreon was started a few years ago. It's a way. Um, to kind of support people who are doing creative things. There's a lot of musicians, there's podcasters, there's people doing video casting, all sorts of, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, but it's a way to kind of show your support and encourage people who are doing stuff you like, which is why I like it. So I, there's a couple of bands on Patreon that I support. They make music. I like to, them to keep making music. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash juice and squeeze. And it's a way for you to um, give us a couple of bucks and encourage us to keep doing this podcast. And it also, um, you know, helps us to cover the costs of hosting the podcast. Um, that's the boring part. I mean, it's great. We really appreciate the encouragement. But what is potentially cool about this is that we also um, provide some exclusive content on there. So we've got our episodes go up early on Patreon. We've got some little discussions that Julia and I have that are only available on Patreon and we have a Slack channel for Juice and Squeeze listeners that you have access to. And, you know, my dream is that we have some discussions that can take place uh, between all of us, you guys and us listening, um, that can go beyond what we talk about on the podcast. So um, please head over there if you like what we're doing and throw us some support there. And we look forward to interacting with you uh, on Slack and not just through the podcast. And also, have a happy Halloween. Right. Okay. I think we also need at least one picture of uh, uh, some Julia Halloween decorations at some point. Deal. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot, Julia. That was great. And um, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.